Good morning, everyone. We're back in the Enchiridion by Martin Chemnitz, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments. And we're looking at the doctrine of election. We'll pick back up on page 88. And I can't honestly remember exactly where we left off. So if we overlap a little bit, so be it. But again, what has been taught heretofore in these pages on predestination or election that began at page 85 so this is a biblical doctrine. It's necessary. Viewed from certain angles, it can be a difficult doctrine. Viewed from the chief and primary angle that God intends it for, it's gospel for the church. It's comfort for the saints that so great is our Lord's salvation toward us. And so little do we have anything to contribute to it that before we were even born, he elected us unto this eternal predestination in his son Jesus. And then he makes known that eternal predestination through the word and the sacraments so that we would not doubt but believe that we are in fact his and are in fact elect. Okay, so let's open with an invocation and prayer and then we'll pick up in that latter half of the answer to question 179. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so question 179, how then can the doctrine of eternal predestination or the election of the children of God to salvation be grasped in a sure way according to the analogy of Scripture and set before the uninstructed that they be not offended or disturbed thereby, but rather draw comfort and be improved? And then Chemnitz lists, starting on page 88, he lists eight points By which God, foreseeing the fall of the first parents and the evils that were to follow as a result of it, decreed and determined in his hidden counsel out of free mercy and love toward mankind, that, and let's simply pick back up at three, and we'll just kind of read quickly here. If it starts to sound familiar, wave your hand in the air, let me know. Three, that by the preaching, hearing, and meditation of the word, he wanted to work effectively in us by enlightening hearts through the Holy Spirit, by turning them to repentance, and by kindling, increasing, strengthening, and preserving faith in them. Four, he determined to justify all those who in earnest repentance and true faith embraced and received Christ offered in the word and the sacraments, that is, absolved them from sins, received them into grace, and adopted them into sonship and the inheritance of life eternal. But those who reject, despise, blaspheme, and persecute his word, who, are heart, who harden their hearts when they hear the word, who resist the Holy Spirit and persevere in sins without repentance, who do not want to receive Christ in true faith, by which they might be justified and saved, or who imitate the form of piety by outward hypocrisy, to which there is no foundation. Those, I say, he has also determined, according to his long-suffering and much patience, to call and invite to repentance through the ministry. But if they persist and continue in ungodliness, he determined to consign them to eternal damnation, since they love darkness rather than light. Obviously, you can hear the echoes of scriptures, and there's lots of scriptures between. So, what this, I think what these verses or what these two passages are summarizing for us is that verse that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's, that's an earnest invitation. It's not a sleight of hand on God's part. How do we reconcile that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but then he elects or he causes faith as a gift to be worked in us? How do we reconcile those two things? The answer is we don't. So this is a well-known paradox in this particular article of the faith, the gratia universalis, the universal grace that God desires all to be saved, 
and sola gratia, that we are saved by the grace of God alone. How do you reconcile those two things? There is no rational way to reconcile those two things. God has put those things above us. And the attempt to climb up into the secret and hidden counsel of God and discover how those things are reconciled will actually lead to our downfall, Icarus style. The point being that God will have a humble people. He won't divulge everything to us. He will be our God and we will be his people and we'll either stay in our pay grade, which is, as we covered last week, when Jesus is addressed with these kinds of questions, his answer is universally and always in one form or another, how about you repent? (laughs) That's what it means to stay within our pay grade when we find unanswerable things that are nonetheless very clearly taught in the scriptures. So this then is take a tangent quickly, a very important part of learning how to become a theologian or just being a faithful child of God, however you want to conceptualize it. And that is to say exactly what God says, no more, no less. We're not given to understand all things. We're given to confess what he gives us to confess, and to be confessors of the faith and to be um, mouthpieces of his word. That's the task. The task isn't to resolve all the apparent contradictions or paradoxes, which, by the way, if you continue in maturity in the Christian faith, you're going to realize that every article of the faith, we could be talking about the Lord's Supper, we could be talking about baptism, we could be talking about some point of Christology or or another, we could be talking about the Trinity, we could be talking about the new man and his relationship with the old man. Every article of the faith has this kind of apparent contradiction within it. It's by design. It's by design. That saying to us, in no uncertain terms, that I want you to know this much and no more. And if you would approach me by reason, you can get no further. So where reason cannot ascend, faith can Because faith simply hears and affirms, hears and confesses. So that's a lot of our task in all of Christianity, and this article is no different. As Jesus directs us to pay attention to ourselves, to repent, to to consider um, not so much if we should be seating ourselves on the throne judging God if he's just and damning some and saving others. Rather, we should be before his throne uh, pleading for his grace and his mercy. We know that we have that, and we know that we have his election when we look to the preached word and the administered sacraments. And there the answer, I mean, the devil will use our reason and whatever it is that we might think to overturn this to do just that, to make God out to be a liar. But the fundamental question to us always has to be this sort of existentially based question. Did God say, does he lie? Did God say, you are my child? Yes. In the waters of holy baptism, he made you his child. Does God lie? No, he does not lie. Then you can be certain that you are elect from before the foundation of the world. In Pop's reason, saying something like, yes, but don't people turn away from baptism? Aren't there baptized people in hell? To which the the proper response there is, what does that have to do with you? Are you going to reject? Are you going to judge God? What does it have to do with you? What What would you do with that information? Why do you bring that up now? And the real reason is to undermine the comfort just given. Thus we become unwitting chess pieces, pawns, and mouthpieces of Satan, whose whole goal is to cause people, ourselves included, to doubt God's word. So we need to be aware of the sort of 3D chess, to borrow a tired term, going on here, where the devil brings what seem to be very rational, pious questions to our mind, that if you just pay attention, you go, well, what's the end result of that question? It undermines and destroys the promise of God. Hmm, are you sure you want to entertain it anymore? (laughs) Right? 
Okay, so that may be best I can do to summarize points three and four there. Anything you want to chat about? There's a hand all the way up in the opposite corner of you. Uh, It seems that sometimes in the Bible there's a term, stiff-necked people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering if you could comment on that. It seems like we all have some degree of that in us. And I know when I'm trying to share the gospel, a stiff-necked nature of a person, it just comes right out. It's like a wall that I I sense. It's almost... uh, visually observable, but it really isn't. It's like a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I just wonder if you could just comment that in the context of God wanting to give this gift and this stiff-necked magnetic field. Uh, I think it's used in the Bible more in the Old Testament, isn't it? But but anyway. Yeah, it's, it's apropos anywhere where there's stubborn unbelief that persists despite the ministrations of God. To the contrary. God does indeed desire all to be saved. And he sends forth that gospel, and that gospel is in many cases stubbornly resisted, and that's the idea of the stiff-necked people. Now, there is something, I think, fascinating about this. Because, let me think of an analogy. Now, this might bite me, but I'll try it anyway, just from the, from the hip here. Okay, if you're, if you're a vacuum cleaner salesman and you're going door-to-door to sell your vacuums and you knock on the door and they see your uniform, you say, do you want to buy a vacuum? It's a great. They say, no. You don't say, you stiff-necked person. You just go to the next house, right? You say, okay, thank you, and you go to the next house. In other words, where where a person realizes there's not going to be a sale or when a person realizes there's not going to be a reconciliation, they just move on. There's no commentary that's necessary. What's fascinating is why would you tell someone that they're a stiff-necked person or that they're being stiff-necked? Because you hope by those very words to cause them to recognize what they're doing and repent and be saved. So there's a lot of rhetoric like this in the scriptures where if God had really given up on the people, he wouldn't even be speaking. He would have moved on to the next door. He would have just trotted off in silence. You know, when the relationship's over, you don't call people to tell them like, hey, hey, I called you yesterday and told you the relationship's over. I'm calling you again today to tell you the relationship is over. <laughs> so those people that do that, um, they don't really want the relationship to be over, do they? Even if it's toxic, you know, some attention is better than none. But in this case, they don't want the relationship to be over. They haven't truly gotten over it. So it's important for us to realize that some of the harsh things God says and some of the things like this is a stiff-necked people or an unbelieving people have a rhetorical punch that's that's more accurately what God's after than a sort of declarative statement of fact. So in calling someone a stiff-necked person, or these, referring to these people as stiff-necked people, the hope of God in doing that is that they'll turn and a relationship, a reconciliation can take place. And by re- relationship, please, I don't mean um, Jesus is my boyfriend type stuff. I just mean, uh, you know, Two different things interacting with one another. Two different people interacting with one another. What do you call that? Call it a relationship. So the relationship between God and his, his people here. So a lot of these rebukes are still said in love and are said by a father who's seeking through those very rebukes to call his wayward son back home. I love your analogy because if... We are the Christians who are knocking on the door, selling the vacuum. And they say, no, not buying it. You move on to the next house. You're living your life. You're just going on from house to house. We don't know that in that house, within the next few weeks, the bag of bird seeds going to break open and their feather pillow explodes and they need a vacuum. <laughs> and then they're going to look for a vacuum salesman. Right. They're going to go to someone, maybe not us, but someone who can talk to them about 
God's promises. And so it's up to God to create the mess that a vacuum is necessary. And yeah, we, like, you, really even like though they angle. say no right now, doesn't mean no forever. And we're not the one to ultimately fix all the problems. We're just planting that seed, like you said. So I, I like your analogy. I don't think it yeah, I really like that angle on it. And uh, it's true that sometimes the stiff neck, to try to tie the two the stiff neck has to be broken before you've got somebody to hear, you know, or, or has to be loosened up or whatever analogy or metaphor you want to do. Um, God has to break that down. So sometimes you preach the gospel to people or you speak the gospel to people and they're not ready. And the simple answer is because their life's too good. I, I mean, it's kind of a sad realization. It's not like we pray for bad things to happen to people, but it's like, Lord, you've got more work to do on this person before this word takes root. Please. I was just thinking of that salesman analogy. Like, wouldn't be that very good of a salesman who comes and says, here, you want to buy this vacuum cleaner? And they say, no. And you say, oh, okay, well, <laughs> okay, have a nice day. You'd say, like, okay, well, you don't need it now, but when your bird seed breaks, you're going to need one. And then, hmm. So maybe there's some equivalent. I have a new, thing, have a new uh, nightmare to have, bird seed breaking and going everywhere. <laughs> Takes me back to PS, PTSD from uh, my children's childhood when James comes and gets me, and I, I go over, and Genevieve's just waddling around in her diaper, nothing else, saying, uh oh. <laughs> and then there was a bag of rice covering the entire uh, kitchen and dining room floor. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, the analogy can be understood from different angles and taken in different ways. Obviously, as we, we persist in preaching the gospel where we're able to. If somebody closes that door, we say, okay, God's got to do that later. Um, from God's vantage point, though, too, and there are, in fact, people that God, their heart is so hardened, and even he hardens their heart, the scriptures say. So that's a punishment for them hardening their own heart. And it's just, yeah, that, that person is. Uh, I mean, this... We need, to, we need to be willing to believe exactly what the scriptures say because from this is going to come true fear of God. And that is that you can put yourself outside of God's grace. He, he is uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he does get angry. He does run out of patience. He does say enough with this person in particular or with these people collectively and if we don't acknowledge that because we want God to just kind of be the good guy in the sky and the loving guy and the guy that never does any of that, well, we're going to end up denying a whole bunch of scripture, but we're also simultaneously going to lose any sense of fear. So we have to have in our minds the idea that God could get fed up with my nonsense any day and be rid of me. That's exactly the kind of piety that David has when he writes the psalm, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. I understand that my sins are such that you would be just in forsaking me. You would be just in removing from me the gift of faith. So understanding that is a fundamental thing about God, that we live in that true and genuine and pious fear, biblical fear of God. It's an essential ingredient. And so we do have examples of this then in the scriptures where people are hardened beyond help. Now, in, in theory, of course, if that person you know, came to their senses, to borrow the language of Jesus, uh, is God going to forbid them and say, well, now that I see you've repented, the answer is still no. We have no indication of that in the scriptures. It's just that they won't repent, and they stubbornly refuse, and God is face-to-face with them saying, here, and they say no, and what, what more is God going to do? So he brushes off his hands and goes about his business. Sorry, but back to the vacuum cleaner one more time. Okay. It's even though we're selling the vacuum cleaner and we tell people you don't need it right now, you might need it later, it puts us back to saying, well, how's my vacuum cleaner? <laughs> Do I even know how to use it? Am I using all the attachments? Am I, you know, so it comes back to us. We're trying to tell everybody else how to live their lives, but we really, yeah, need to look at ourselves too. It's the same pride and despair. Once we stop focusing on ourselves so much, now we want to witness to everybody else 
I'm experiencing this a little bit where the more I learn, the more I see there's so many errors and wrong thinking and mm-hmm. it's not my job to go around correcting everybody. I'm grateful that I can see it, but you yeah. know, mind your where, own it, vacuum. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's where you, it's really where you have opportunity. Right. And I think at, at times in our lives where we're zealous to do that kind of stuff, we should do that stuff. We should worry that it's, you know, Oh, it, well, it turned out to be futile. I didn't get anybody to convert or didn't get anybody to church or whatever the case. Um, okay. So, we shouldn't be afraid of a failure, uh, and we should. Where we're zealous, we should do it. I think where we're not zealous, we don't need to guilt ourselves or beat ourselves into it. Look for opportunities, and you're right. I mean, you can you can go have a, a coffee with some friends, and every other sentence there's something you could correct. But not only is that exhausting, it's obnoxious. So you got to pick and choose. And I think that's one of the masterful things about Jesus and his way and his style. He never sinned. He never capitulated. He never tried to score points with sinners by kind of joining them in the muck. And yet he wasn't obnoxious. He wasn't off-putting. He, there's a, a genuineness and a truthfulness, probably an innocence about him, but really also some thick skin <laughs> that made sinners comfortable around him. It's one of the things to marvel at. And I think to whatever degree we can kind of study and emulate how can you be perfectly holy and yet that in such a way that you're not off-putting to sinners? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so all that to say then that as we pull back into these two points Chemnitz gives us, we can see here that God earnestly desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why are they not? Well, here's this list of, it's not because God begrudges them salvation. It's not because they're not elect. The Bible never says those things. But rather, in this kind of catalog, those who reject, despise, blaspheme, and persecute his word, who harden their hearts, who resist the Holy Spirit, who persevere without, in sin without repentance, who do not want to receive Christ, who choose for themselves other ways, etc., etc. That, why is a, why, and it's just kind of this very simple statement. It's biblically true. It's not, it's not satisfying to our reason, but it's biblically true. If you're in heaven, that's because God put you there. If you're in hell, it's because you put you there. And you can see that kind of catalog of ways in which you can put yourself there along with the accompanying scripture references there in paragraph 4. Okay, so then moving on to five, he determined that he would also sanctify in love those who have been justified by faith and to renew them unto new obedience through his Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is another thing God affects. He determines that he would sanctify. So before the foundation of the world, God determines to sanctify you. And you can tell that this is sanctification in the sense that we use it, the narrow sense, because it's juxtaposed to justification justified by faith, but that's not all God wants for us. I mean, the forgiveness of sins is wonderful, but it's really just the beginning. And to be even maybe a little bit more scandalous about it, if that's what it in fact is, the forgiveness of sins doesn't exist as we're going to heaven. The, the gospel is for this life only. It's not like in heaven we need the forgiveness of our sins. So the forgiveness of sins is in that sense a start even as this whole life is a start. The forgiveness of sins is a foretaste of what's to come. The forgiveness of sins is the the necessary beginning of all the other things that God has in store for us. And one of those things is sanctification. And so God, before the foundation of the world, determined how he... This is what I meant meant the the other week when I said none of of it's an accident. Think of how big God's mind is. If if engineers can plot this out with... uh, motherboards and computer components and think of how these things are all going to interact together. How much more can God do this with human beings? But he knows who you are. He knows what family, to what family you're going to belong. He knows what personalities are there. He knows the neighbors that are going to surround you, the people who are going to befriend you, and the people who you're going to befriend. He, he knows and has orchestrated it all. It's not by accident. There's nothing by accident in that sense. 
And God's intent and purpose is to work through all these people and all these things and all the events that would occur in your life to sanctify you. And to sanctify you is, in biblical terms, to conform you into the image of Christ. And that varies by degree. It varies by person. We're all justified by faith, but in sanctification, we all don't attain to the same, nor does God have us attain to the same. But this is something that he also foreordains before the foundation of the world. So he determined, you can hear that in, even in the language when we're talking about um, election and predestination. He determined that he would also sanctify and love those who have been justified by faith and to renew unto new obedience through his Holy Spirit. So again, he writes into you a new heart that can confess the creed and a new heart that begins to love God and begins to desire to do what is right. All of these things are miracles that God works within us. All right, six, that he would also graciously defend those who have been called to that way, justified and sanctified against sin, death, and the devil the world, and the flesh. So again, the key is graciously defend. So defend them against sin, death, and the devil, the world, and the flesh. Here's the second word, guard. Guard them against all evil. Lead and direct them through the Holy Spirit in the way of his commandments. So lead and direct. And then notice how it's in the way of his commandments. So it's not unto freedom from the commandments. That would be definition biblically that would be defined as sin. Sin is anomia, lawlessness. But here God leads and directs us through the Holy Spirit in the way of his commandments. Then just continuing with Chemnitz, raise the fallen and sustain and preserve them under the cross and temptation with strong comfort. So I know we're getting lengthy grammar here and my comments aren't helping any, but raise the fallen means that when we do fall into sins or when we do fall into unbelief, it's God who raises us back up to faith. We mentioned David earlier, like David, Bathsheba, Uriah, that whole incident. God raises David, though he was fallen. And then he sustains us and preserves us under the cross and temptation. So this is the cross that he lays upon us. And the temptation here is not just merely temptation to sin, but the kind of temptation to apostatize. It can be built upon or predicated upon our personal sin, but not necessarily. This is the kind of like onfectung or tentatio, the cross and temptation. Um, It's... It's the means that the devil tries to use to get us to abandon the faith, and it's the very same means that God uses to strengthen our faith, to grow our faith and deepen our faith. Okay, so sustain and preserve them under the cross and temptation with strong comfort, and as the faithful God, not permit them to be tempted beyond their ability but make the outcome such that they can bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13, which of course always strikes us as troubling because we always think God's constantly putting things upon us that we can't bear. (laughs) And understood in that way, that's true. But he's really ultimately talking about apostasy. He's talking about forsaking God into sin and sin that just goes straight into unbelief. It's It's in that sense that he won't give us anything that we cannot bear. I mean, in terms of crosses and afflictions, that's like the definition of a God cross and a God affliction is you can't bear it. <laughs> that's the point. And you can, you can probably think back on your life without any hint of self-righteousness and recognize, I was too immature for that then, but I can, I can handle or am handling that now. Or that, was, that once shook my faith or would have shaken my faith, but now it's not a thing. I mean, that... There's no self-righteousness in that. There's just a recognition that the Holy Spirit 
does his work in us and matures us in due time and strengthens us in due time. What was previously something we absolutely could not handle, now suddenly we can handle. And then you also kind of realize, too, that along the way, as, as various crosses and afflictions have come upon you and you learned how to negotiate the, and navigate those, you suddenly become way, way more adept and skilled at helping others who are suffering through the same thing because you know it and you know the pain and, or at least you know something about it and you know what to say and not to say and what's helpful and not helpful. And, and that's, all, that's all the things that God works in us too. You go, well, so he wounds me so that I can help heal other wounded? Well, is that, is that some kind of noxious thing? I mean, that's exactly Christ the one who's wounded beyond all in order to be able to heal all. So the kind of wounded healer thing is a, is a legit thing. It's a Christological thing, and it's something that God works in us. So, again, this is kind of where you can look at that and say, well, that's a, that's a weakness that I have, or that's something that I wish didn't happen, or something that I wish I didn't know. And not to trample those kinds of feelings. Those feelings can be true um, in their own right. But there's something deeper at work that God is doing, and we need to recognize that as well. None of it's by accident. Okay, so then just concluding the last three lines here of this paragraph six, and finally, bring it about that for those who have been called according to his purpose, all things, and you'll remember, all things work for good, Okay, but here he's added in he's, uh, an explanation of these all things. All things, also cross, temptations, and tribulations result in good. So the sufferings aren't accidental. And bearing, even just bearing suffering in itself while retaining faith toward God uh, is in and of itself an act of worship. So we're always so utilitarian, and that's one of our weaknesses, one of my own weaknesses. I've just made the case on a utilitarian basis. Um, it can, the case can be made without any utility whatsoever that, say, you're, you're suffering something that and won't help anybody else whatsoever. So what then is the value of it? And the value of it is that is the same value of Christ crucified who still maintains faith in God. It's perfect worship. It's what we're called to. It's what we're designed for and what glorifies God. And that's to be kept in mind, too. That, you know, so say you find yourself in some nursing home or rehab center and you're just experiencing pain and uh, you think you're doing so in a vacuum and nobody else is seeing or noticing or caring, retaining faith in God and praying insofar as you can pray and so on and so forth. I mean, what does that look like from heaven's perspective? It's glorious. It's glorious. It's better than any bull on an altar. That's, so this is the whole idea of, uh, again, um, that we are, as St. Paul says, living sacrifices. A sacrifice is a quickly dying, but mostly dead thing. <laughs> That's what a sacrifice is. And so to be a living sacrifice means to be continually being sacrificed, continually being killed, continually experiencing that pain, um, but alive to God and glorifying God in and through it, that is in and of itself of profoundest value and meaning and is true worship of God. So this is where faith then in all of life's, life's circumstances is itself worship and is itself proper. So just some encouragement along those lines too because you know it's like, well, I get migraines. What good does that do for anyone else? You know, well, do you keep the faith in the midst of your migraines? Do you retain your, your trust in God's goodness? Because that is of value. It is of value. Just as metal is tested and tried, the impurities are dissolved, but the metal itself remains. It's tested and tried. It's pure and true. And we're told explicitly in the scriptures that God tests us, tries. So simply to remain true is to be that precious metal. Okay. Well, sorry to be so sermonic on all of this, but maybe in a sense this is uh, some rain on, on dry ground because I don't know how much we've talked about this 
as a church uh, here in America where everything's happy and wonderful all the time and utilitarian and all the rest. Okay, seven. That if only those whom he has called rely firmly on the word, continue in prayers without ceasing, and remain in the goodness of God, holding the beginning of his confidence firmly to the end, properly and faithfully administer the gifts they have received. I say that he, capital H, he wants to strengthen them to be faithful to the end. So, I mean, just quick comment. All he's really saying here is God has given you those gifts. If you receive those gifts, it doesn't matter how weakly or how how many other infirmities there are within you or weaknesses of faith within you that God sees that you desire the good things he's given and will bless you in that desire. I mean, this is just so gloriously true. It's a a good reason to drag your teenagers to church, even if the night before they did stuff they weren't supposed to do, and especially then. (laughs) Because no matter how weak the love for the things of God, no matter how weak the desire, no matter how weak the recognition... God is so abundantly gracious that he promises to bless even that. There are probably several of us in the room, many of us in the larger church, who experience this grace of God. Like, I can't believe how little I loved it. <laughs> and yet, he, God, you know, I mean, think of how rude that is. <laughs> but think of how gracious God is, that he's like, okay, I'm going to work with that. There's a smoldering wick, I'm not going to snuff it out. I'm going to fan it back to flame. I'm going to bring it back brighter than ever. So this is great comfort, great comfort here in these opening uh, passages, and that's really what, what Chemnitz is after. Okay, so just picking up where we left off, about maybe four lines down from the top of 89. But those who grieve and vex the Holy Spirit, who turn themselves impudently away from the knowledge of Christ and from the Holy Commandment, and are overcome having freely become entangled again in the filth of this world, who sweep and prepare their hearts for Satan, who walks about, or who also, because of confidence in their own holiness before God, there's the pharisaical kind of confidence in their own holiness before God, begin to boast proudly. I say that he wants to recall them also to repentance. And that's, I mean, if you're an underliner, that's worth underlining. So even people who reject him and are wicked and turn away from the gospel and turn away from God, just as the prodigal son himself did, right? He left his father's house. Jesus summarizes all of this so beautifully in that sermon. I say that he, God, wants to recall them also to repentance. And when they have been converted, receive them into grace. And then Luke 15 on the prodigal son. But if they neglect to repent while it is called today and persist in impenitence in such a way that their latter state becomes worse than the former, I say that in them he wants to set up also in this life to show his wrath and power a fearful example of desertion, hardening, blindness, and being given over to a reprobate mind to do things that are not convenient, which that's got to be a weird usage of that word. But uh, And then a bunch of scripture references given there, which, of course, if we want to go dig into those, we can. But I think, based on what we've said already, self-evident here, that in those whom stubbornly and reject God, he then will use them as an example unto his good purposes that he would create fear in others who would otherwise be impenitent. So, yeah, sinners who reject God become object lessons for those who would be saved. And you can think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 making this case where he goes through um, the history of God's people in the wilderness wanderings saying that they had a baptism in the Red Sea and saying that they had a holy supper, so to speak, in the manna and the water that flowed from the rock. So he's drawing the parallel between these people and the church. And then he goes through all the episodes of their rebellion and their apostasy and their hardness of hearts and how they were punished. And he says, these things were written for us. 
that though we've received this wonderful grace in God, we can still offend him beyond that, and we can still do what is displeasing and be destroyed. So these things are written for our example, that we not fall into this. So those people who are destroyed, even if, whether it's just temporal death as the punishment or eternal death as the punishment, that's there for an example to us that we would likewise fear and use that to crucify the sinful flesh within us and remain in true faith. All right, that's Chemnitz's point. I'm just trying to summarize it and put some biblical meat to the bones without going and looking at every one of the scriptures that he here cites. So far, so good? Okay, there's a hand. Why would God orchestrate um, a person becoming a killer? Yeah, so the... Behind that. Yeah, so... This is, the, this is the important distinction that we've hit before here with Chemnitz and obviously Augustine and others, that just because God foreknows something, he doesn't cause something. So, as I said earlier, if you will, one side of the coin is there are no accidents, and God chooses and plans how things are going to go and who's going to interact with who, who's going to be in your life. That doesn't make God culpable for the sins that people commit. God doesn't cause them to sin or do evil. So that causation lies with them. So it's not as though God goes, okay, I'm going to put you with a murderer because I want you to get murdered. God says, I'm going to put you in this situation and I foresee that these bad things are going to happen. I'm not causing them. That's That's the evil agency of that individual or the individual's. And they'll have to be accountable, and they'll be answerable for that. Now, is God big enough? Is his mind capable of working out his good purposes despite the evil intentions of man and demon? Of course, that's the point. And even if we don't see how that can be true, we should at least in due humility realize that in this life we have only half the equation. And God never promises in this life the scales will be balanced. But what he does promise is that at the return of his son, they will be balanced. At the return of his son, there will be no, not one single finger of man or angel who can be shaking at God and saying, this is not right or this was not fair of you, or this was not just. be impossible. So those would be thoughts to consider there in that nexus of things. Um, no matter how much uh, God foresees and causes, God is never, properly speaking, the cause of sin. The scriptures will talk about him being the cause of evil, like what the insurance companies will call acts of God. (laughs) And that's a different thing. God's fully within his prerogative to do that, isn't he? So in that sense, the scriptures will say that God is a cause of evil, but but the scriptures never say that God is a cause of moral evil. That's the distinction. God's never a cause of sin. How could he be? It's contrary to his nature. How can light be darkness? How can good be evil? How can God lie? He's the truth. So are there things that God is incapable of? Yeah, (laughs) definitely. If not, you have a philosopher's God. God is not capable of lying because he is in and of himself the truth. If he lied, he'd cease to be the truth. He'd cease to be God. It's just nonsense viewed from that angle. God would cease to be God. So he doesn't lie. He doesn't sin. All right, should we do seven? That if only... Wait, did I just do seven? Eight. Thank you. Finally, God resolved in his eternal counsel to save and glorify in eternal life those, those I say, whom he has called and justified, if they endure to the end. There's that beautiful word, endurance. If they endure to the end. That is, if they hold fast their first trust in him, confidence, and the glorying of hope firmly to the end. 
Scripture relates all these things with each other, and they ought to be thought of and considered together in the purpose, decree, predestination, election, or preordination of God to salvation is discussed. And in that way, the doctrine of predestination can be salutarily set forth and most clearly understood. All right, so I think maybe just to summarize and simplify, when we talk about God's election, we're not merely talking about an election to salvation. We're talking about something that's encompassing of our whole persons, that he not only determines to elect us, but all the other things he's going to work in us and through us in this life, it's all by design that we would come to the fullness of what we would have otherwise been. So if God, if God created the world and had his will in the primary sense, his will done, would Adam and Eve have fallen into sin? No. Everything would have been blessed and blessed, and we would have expanded over the face of the earth. We would have been fruitful and multiplied. We would know more about God now than we, or, or we would know more about God now than we do given the fall. And we, everything would be blessed. Instead of death, it would be a beautiful translation and transformation into glory. On account of sin, that's all gotten ruined, but in Christ Jesus, it's being put back together. And the way that that's being put back together is, is such that our end now is going to be just as glorious as our end had we not sinned. So then God has, this is what I mean when I say, and I don't mean this in a technical sense, that God has redesigned the fallen world in order to accomplish the same purposes that he originally had. Which is our glorification and our being conformed into the image of his son. That would have been painless and without cross or trial. But on account of sin, it's painful and filled with cross and trial. But the end result is the same. Conformed into the image of his son and glorified with him for all eternity. Okay, that brings to close the lengthy, thorough answer to question 179. Uh, Anything else rattling around, or should we use our time to hit one more? Let's do that then. 180. But does predestination include only the work of salvation itself and not at the same time the persons of those to be saved? In this article, Scripture includes at the same time also the persons of the elect. For one must not believe that God has, by his predestination, prepared only salvation in general. And that's key. This is something we try to do to defend the position and make God appear to be just or honorable in this. But we really can't do it because it doesn't come from the scriptures and God doesn't need us to do that for him anyway. Certainly doesn't want us to do that. So once more, one must not believe that God has by his predestination prepared only salvation in general. But gave no thought to the very persons of those to be saved but left this whole matter to them so that they try to obtain and attain that salvation by their own natural powers and endeavors. But God graciously foreknew the elect, one and all, who are to be saved through Christ in his eternal counsel of predestination and gracious purpose and predestinated and chose them to salvation. At the same time, preordaining how he would call bring and preserve them through his grace, gifts, and power to the salvation prepared in Christ. In other words, the causation there is all God's. Okay, so what would be an example of this? I know this is pious and well-meaning, but an example of this would be like, well, everyone's elect in Christ, or some statement like that. That does violence to the actual biblical doctrine of election. Or um, God God elects all people, but then few are chosen or something like that, or few um, receive that election. These kinds of statements, while well-intentioned, are doing violence to the doctrine of election proper. Because the doctrine of election proper is that God chose you by name, by person. And that um, then kind of introduces this concept of the scandal of particularity. 
But again, this we just have to get over. Because God can do whatever he wants, and he's God. And do you want to be saved or not? And that scandal of particularity can even be seen sometimes in a family when you reflect thus. Why, why am I still a Christian and my siblings aren't? Did I not resist as hard as they did? And other such bad questions to ask. Um, rather, we simply give thanks to God and pray for our siblings, in this case, or whoever else we want to be saved. And, but we have to realize that there's particularity in the calling of God. There's particularity in the election of God. It's not because of any worthiness or merit within us. It's before we were even born. But it is something he does. And why we want to hold to that so firm is because that promise then is made to you in the waters of baptism, in the absolution of your particular sins. When Christ says, my body given, my blood shed for you, and those words for you require your heart to believe, there's a particularity there that is essential because God isn't calling everybody in general and then you just happen to be a part God's calling you specifically and by name. And that's why he's orchestrated you to hear these very words. It's not accidental. Where he's orchestrated it such that you will hear the gospel or be raised with, in, a, in a home where the gospel is preached or have a dear friend or someone take you to church and so on and so forth. I mean, it's inexhaustible the means that God uses. Uh, but we want to embrace that. There's no, I think, I think we're worried about that. That sounds like egotistical or sounds something. The ego is precluded. Not because of any worthy or, worthiness or merit in me. The ego is precluded. We don't have to worry about that. What we do want to acknowledge is that God is particular. And God doesn't make mistakes. And you're not saved by just some sort of general, general oh yeah, you too. He calls you by name. Your name is written on the book of life. He knows you personally and individually. And before the foundation of the world, before he even made you, he said, yep, this one's mine, and I'm going to make sure it happens. And you want to believe these things because that's what he says. And whatever other sophistry or excuse or rationalisms to the contrary we might present or might be presented to us are ultimately serving the devil, not God. Uh, how do you reconcile that with the uh, in First Timothy, um, where God says that He intends uh, He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? Yeah, not in any way to deny the objective nature that God has, that the gospel is for all, that Christ died for all, that the death of Christ is so sufficient at destroying death that every last person will be raised from the dead on the last day, even unbelievers. So. Nothing that I'm saying is, uh, should be construed to reject any of those profound truths. But we don't want to use those profound truths, conversely, to destroy the specificity of the call of God, the specificity and particularity and individuality of his election. We just want to hold both those things together and confess them both. I mean, and it is true and wonderful and beautiful to say Christ died for all people. That's how I know that Christ died for you, so believe not taking that away in the least. That is true. But what is also true is that God foreknew you by name and called you and has orchestrated and will continue to orchestrate all things unto your election and salvation. And don't take that for granted and don't dismiss that or don't use other Bible passages because you're, quote, too humble, right? I'm not saying this of you at all, but this is the tendency within us to be, quote, too humble to believe that. But that's just a fancy way of calling God a liar, and cloaking it in piety. The outrageousness of the gospel is partially this, that we have to recognize that he has me in mind and called me. And that's true for you. And again, it's not an ego trip because it has, it has nothing to do with us, like as in terms of our worthiness or merit, but it has everything to do with his election and his choice. It's his prerogative, it's his business, and it's blessed and wonderful. And if you just embrace that, like, hey, it's him, it's what he's done, then there's nothing more comforting and nothing more assuring that he knows you warts and all, inside and out, and everything else, and he says, yep, you. I won't have it any other way. It's great. Another verse that comes to mind, and I think it's going to what you're saying, is that we are called, and if you're chosen, would that be associated with what you're saying, that God calls all of us, but only a few are chosen? 
Yeah, I think, I think it's incumbent upon us to not get too tied down to the technicality of the language, especially when we're way outside of the context in which he says those things. When Jesus says that many are called and few are chosen, it has the tendency of when people reject. That's when he uses that, that phrase, if I'm not mistaken, the few times that he uses it. And so, yes, the call of the gospel is to many. And, and I, I don't think it's a jump. It may be, but I don't think it's a jump to say that applies to the general proclamation of the gospel and the communication of the objective nature of the universal nature of our justification on account of Christ crucified. Uh, But the few being chosen has to do with the few receiving that gospel and Christ wanting to emphasize at this point that their receipt of the gospel isn't because of their free will decision or anything within them but because the Father has chosen them. And he has chosen, you know, when you look at Jesus using this word, he chooses not the wise, but the little children, such as his gracious will. And he, uh, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, he says to Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. So, the Father's revelation of the Son, the Father's choosing is on display. So Christ, of course, puts these, I mean, just masterfully, wonderfully, confoundingly to our reason, puts these two things in place, both the universal call and the particular choosing of God. It causes a train wreck in our brains, but that's not a first for Jesus. That's kind of his M.O., Okay, anything else there? Then let's press on with the last couple minutes we have. I think we can get through. Let's see, did we just do 180? Was that a yes? Okay, (laughs) sorry. 181. Does that election take place then first when men repent and believe the gospel? Or was it made because of their holiness foreseen from eternity. Okay, so this is kind of, these are ways of describing what will become, come to be known as intuitu fide, which is in view of faith. And this doesn't make one bit of logic, logical sense and it doesn't make one bit of scriptural sense, but people still imagined it because you know anything to get out from just believing God. So intuitu fide is this idea that God, before the foundation of the world, looked into time and said that you, saw that you'd believe in him, which is to your credit, and thus elected you. Makes no sense. Okay. Because election is causing you to have faith. So he looked into the future to see if he caused you to have faith so that he could determine to cause you to have faith. You see how it's circular and by no means makes any rational sense whatsoever. So it's irrational and it's not biblical, so... The same thing then applies to these sort of subsets or variations of intuitive fide, that um, he, does election take place then first when God sees men repenting and believing the gospel, and he says, okay, I, I elect you now. And does he do this some sort of, in some sort of irrational, outside of time and space way? They can just clearly be rejected for two reasons. One, it's not in scripture, and two, it's a conditional election can be rejected on both those grounds. And then this latter point, or was it made because of their holiness foreseen from eternity? So either their faith, their decision from Jesus, their holiness, their conduct as a pagan, their conduct as a Christian, whatever you would do to sort of condition the election of God. Again, A, the scriptures say nothing to the effect. B, that's contrary to the gospel. So these things can all be safely rejected. And what they're really trying to do is, is make God appear just to men that there was some causation for why God saved some in those some, thus making God appear to be just. God doesn't need it, and he frankly doesn't want it. It's at counter-purposes to what he's up to, as Luther so thoroughly describes in Bondage of the Will. Okay, so let's get Chemnitz's answer real fast. Paul declares, Ephesians 1.4, he has chosen us in Christ, not in time, but before the foundation of the world were laid, or the foundations of the world were laid. 2 Timothy 1.9 For the election of God does not follow our faith and righteousness, but precedes it as efficient cause. So there's an elegant way of saying the same thing I just said to you. 
Augustine carefully considered what Paul writes, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us not because we were holy or were made holy or because he foresaw that we would be holy. But he chose us in Christ, he says, and did that before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him. For the election or purpose of grace is the efficient cause of all those things that belong to salvation. And this election was made before this world began, not in view of, so there's the intuitu that'll become popularized later on, not in view of our works, either past or present or future, but according to the purpose and good pleasure of the grace of God. So God does not make our election contingent upon anything we do. And if you asserted that he did, then the, it undermines the whole purpose of election. Because election is the doctrine that God gives us to remove the thought of contingency. If it's contingent upon anything we do, it's subject to question or doubt or failure or anything else. God says, I love you so much and I want you to be saved so much. I'm taking it entirely out of your hands. And so I'm going to save you before you're even born. And you can take such great comfort in that because like, no matter how bad I foul up, God's still got my back. He foresaw it all and chose me anyway. That's the great comfort of election. All right, the Lord be with you.